listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, Northside, we're about halfway through our summer. It's been six weeks since school was out. It's six weeks till it starts. Whether you're excited about that or sad about that may have to do with how old your children are and what the last six weeks have been like. Uh, I, I know for us here at the church, uh, we are, I just like our staff team, we're just in, going in so many different directions uh, all over the place. And uh, one of the key contributors to that is actually something we love, which is camp. Uh, we are, we've just had an incredible camp season. About a week ago, we finished our fifth and final session of camp. 582 Northside students and volunteers with the camp this year. Just, we're just celebrating that. Uh, 538 different people, but those who go to multiple sessions, you know, gets us up to that many people actually attending a session at camp. And I was at high school camp and I can just tell you the spiritual conversations that were taking place, the growth that was happening, even those who came in somewhat cynical or broken or hurt or hard hearted or whatever it was to see some walls come down, to see God work and move in some powerful ways, to see every single night baptisms happening. Uh, to see our college students who were investing with our high school kids, baptizing people. I mean, it was just friends baptizing friends. I mean, it was just an awesome, powerful experience for me. That was just one of five sessions of camp this year. And God just moved in a powerful way. So we're just celebrating that. And that's just the first six weeks. It doesn't count the other things that God was already doing this past six weeks. But I know there's more to come. I mean, VBS, you just heard about that. There's a high school float trip. There's a college age event. There's a lot to come. And one of those things that's to come uh, is for me. I leave tomorrow for Kenya to join up with Paul and Pam Highfield. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this trip uh, because I'm going to be spending a, a full day with our Maasai pastors. Churches have been planted all over Maasai land through the ministry that you all have supported and given to for years, many years. And uh, we'll, we're going to do a seminar full day. They wanted me to come talk about Christian family. So we're going to do a whole seminar all day on Christian family. A lot of stuff from Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 and other texts, but uh, we're going to be doing that on for a day. And then for the next three days, uh, we're going to be getting to have building blessings with the churches that you helped build in Pusamoro, Okoroi, and in Losho. And so I'm excited about that as well and looking forward to that. And so you can be praying about that because uh, tomorrow I leave, it'll take over 25 hours just to get to Nairobi, Kenya from the time I leave to the time I get there. And then it's like another eight hour drive into the bush. Yeah, this is what Paul and Pam Highfield go through all the time. And uh, so you can be praying about that journey and also be praying uh, about Paul too. Uh, Paul uh, uh, got lightheaded the other day and wasn't feeling real great. And he went to get out of the vehicle. And when he did, he fainted and fell, hit his head, had to get two stitches, must've hit a rock or something. They have those there in Maasai land too. And, and so he's just, he's been sore and everything got checked out. Okay. But he's just feeling sore other than some degenerative discs that he discovered that he has, it's adding to the pain. So just pray for him and pray for Pam as we're there as well. And one of the things I'm going to be sharing, I, I'm just excited about this because, you know, w- when you look at, at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about the Macedonian church and how the Macedonian church gave out of their extreme poverty. They gave everything they had to give. And it reminds me of the Maasai church. And then he talks to the Corinthian church. 
And he challenges them to continue to give to match their completion of it, of what they were going to do. And so they gave. And together, the two churches were able to serve a need that was going on in the Jerusalem church at the time. They came together and they did something. And it reminds me of what's happening right now. We have come together, us and the Maasai churches of Opusamoro and Okaroy and Losho, we've come together to do something that they couldn't do in and of themselves, but together we can do it. We are one body, many parts, Christ as our head, on mission to connect people to Christ and one another, to reach people for Jesus. That's what this is all about. And I'm going to be going to those churches and not only encouraging them, but I'm going to share with them from Mark chapter 4 about four men who took their paralyzed friend and they dug through the roof to get that friend to Jesus. And the reason they did it is because the crowds had pressed around. There was no way to get to him otherwise. And they were banking on the fact that God cares more about people than he does buildings. I, don't, I think they dug quickly because they weren't sure the homeowner agreed with that, but they were pretty sure Jesus did. God cares about people more than buildings. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about, even with the Maasai, is even as we do a, a building blessing, God cares about people more. Buildings can be a blessing. They can also be a hindrance. And so how do we use this to make disciples for the glory of the Lord? And so we're going to be talking about that, and you can be praying about that. And I'm, I'm excited to share what, what God is is going to do there. And so uh, at this time, we're just going to pray for that. I'm, I'm inviting for you to pray for that this week. Uh, Corey is coming just to pray for that right now as, as I leave uh, tomorrow morning. And just want to invite you to be praying as well. And I know that Wayne's excited about this trip. He's excited to see our Maasai brothers and sisters there. Mm-hmm. I'm a little jealous. Uh, but I don't get to go this time. Uh, I know he's excited about the shy tea. I know he's excited about the soured goat milk and um, a delicacy there. So I can't wait to a see a picture. A lot of goat meat. A lot of goat, meat. goat that, meat. That's true. Yeah, soda pop that tastes like Vicks Vaporub. It's great. Um, but uh, uh, we're going to pray over him. And I'll, I will tell you, one of the things that is fairly unique is the opportunity that we have to send people out from Northside for kingdom work. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, we do not gauge the effectiveness of our ministry by, just by how many people come to Northside. Mm-hmm. But we really gauge the effectiveness, effectiveness of our ministry by how many people we send out from Northside for kingdom work. And you can be a part of that. You are a part of that. And I want to encourage you to continue to be a part of that as we pray for Wayne and we pray for Paul and Pam. And there's something fairly unique that we do around here when we send people out where we lay hands on them. We see this in the Bible. And, um, you know, sometimes if you've been with Northside for a little while, you know, we, we ask you to extend your hands out toward that person here in just a minute. We'll do that. It's, it may be a little awkward. It may be fairly unique. I mean, how often do we actually do that for anybody, right? Just kind of extend our hands out for them. But that's how special this is. That's how important this is. And so uh, may this one act serve as a catalyst for ongoing prayer for this trip. So let's join in prayer right now as a church family. Would you extend your hands this direction toward Wayne right now? We're going to lay hands on him as we pray. God, we rejoice in the opportunity that we have right now to partner in this good work. Since the beginning of time, you have been about partnership. And um, we're glad to uh, do our part in this. We thank you for our brother Wayne, and we're grateful for uh, this call that you've placed on him to uh, go to our Maasai brothers and sisters as a source of encouragement and challenge. Would you give him a spirit of compassion, even on his journey, so that when he makes his way through the airports, he would have magic eyes to see people the way that you do, and that he would um, pray with them and pray for them and, and be on mission to make disciples and plant seeds of your gospel even on the way. And when he arrives, we pray that you would uh, give him a spirit of encouragement Mm -hmm. to bless the pastors uh, who are in the trenches of ministry 
and are laboring so diligently. Would you also give him a spirit of exhortation and challenge to speak boldly from your scriptures and stretch them and grow them to this new season of ministry? We pray for Paul and Pam that you would be a healer and a restorer to Paul. Uh, I know that this stop to Nairobi was not on their itinerary at all, and yet you can use it for good work and for your glory. Uh, We pray that all of these things would be done for the honor of your name in Maasai land. Help us to be prayerful as uh, Wayne is on this trip. And we look forward to hearing the stories upon his return. And it's in Christ's name that all God's people said, Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Thank you. I appreciate that. I'd like for you to uh, say this with me. It's coming up on the screen right here so you can see it. I want to just say this, and if you feel like you can't personally say this for some reason, it's okay, you don't have to, but I'd like for you to say this with me out loud. So I'm giving you the phrase there so you know what it is. God does what he says he's going to do. So we're going to say this together. And let's say it with some conviction. Say it with me. God does what he says he's going to do. Now, those of you who are grammatically conscious and you struggled to say that because you saw the, the phrase gonna up there, I want you to know that since 1806, gonna is officially a word. It is. Reader's Digest proved it like years ago. And so uh, you can look it up. Gonna is a word. So you can, do, you can use it. And so those of you who are the grammatically correct English majors who didn't participate with us, now that you know that that is a word, you can join us. Let's do it one more time. Here's to say it together. God does what he says he's going to do. It doesn't always line up with your preferred timeline. God doesn't always do what you prefer him to do. He doesn't always do what you think he should do. But he's going to do what he says he's going to do. His words and his actions align. He's faithful. So if that means that God makes a promise, then you should believe it. If God gives you a warning, you should heed it. If God gives you a condition in order to receive a blessing or a gift that he wants to give, a reward of some kind, then you'd better follow that condition because God does what he says he's going to do. That's what he does every time. In fact, for 40 years, Jeremiah, the prophet, he was warning Israel of God's coming judgment. He told them, if you don't repent, if you don't turn to the Lord, God is going to bring judgment on you. That The book really is a book of judgment that the Babylonians are coming. It, it, it's a weighty book. It's a heavy book. He's called the weeping prophet for a reason. It just is. And we've been in this book for like six weeks. But I'm telling you today, what we're going to see when we look at the prophecies of Jeremiah is that God does what he says he's going to do. Even though every person in Jeremiah's life, young and old, family, friend, neighbor, prophet, priest, or king, every person in his life opposed his message, didn't believe his message, didn't go with his message. But Jeremiah's message was God does what he says he's going to do. And that, if that means judgment, it's coming. If it means hope and promise and good restoration, it's coming. You can trust him because God does what he says he's going to do. And whenever you read about a prophet from the Old Testament. Here's what you need to know about prophets. Prophets were preachers. They were communicating God's word, preaching the word of God to people who needed to repent, people who needed to obey, people who needed his message. And a lot of times whenever we hear prophet or we hear prophecy, the first thing that comes to our mind is foretelling the future. And what you need to know about the prophets of the Bible is that their first task was not to foretell the future. The first task task was to proclaim the truth of God. It was not foretelling, it was forthtelling. It was telling them what God wanted them to know so they would repent, so that they would obey, so they would listen and hear. That was the role of a prophet. 
That's why the early church called their preachers prophets. They were speaking a word from God. Many of the Old Testament books simply record the prophets preaching, speaking to the people for, re- for repentance. But God did also use the prophets, though it was secondarily, though it wasn't the major thing they did, it was the minor thing they did. He used prophets to foretell what God was going to do. And so he used his prophets in that way. And prophecies often focused upon their times, what God was going to do in their immediate future, what was going to happen. Some of these prophecies that we will even read are pointing to Jesus' first coming. Some of them will even point to the second coming. And oftentimes they were just kind of layered one after another because oftentimes the prophet didn't know the timeline between the events. They just saw the events were happening and so they would just communicate it, not knowing how it was all going to play out or unfold. Even the angels in heaven peer over the balcony of heaven to see how it's all going to play out. And so they would just give it. And in the book of Jeremiah, we see some of that as well. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to quickly look at some prophecies today. The danger of this is that it just kind of comes in like head knowledge. You know, it just seems weighty, a lot of information. It seems like head knowledge. But I, I want to use it today because I believe if we see it, if we understand it, it will help us realize to our core, God does what he says that he's going to do. And I want us to look at some of these, and we're going to be kind of jumping around a couple different chapters in Jeremiah, and that's okay because Jeremiah was not written in chronological order anyway. The book isn't, and so it kind of jumps around as well. But I want us to look at, first of all, at Jeremiah chapter 27, Jeremiah 27, where Jeremiah is prophesying to not just Judah, he's prophesying to Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, he's prophesying to all of these kings and and their people. And Jeremiah tells him that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to reign over them. He's going to rule them. Here's what he says in the text, Jeremiah 27, 6. Now, I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then what Jeremiah does is he goes on to say that that he, Nebuchadnezzar, will rule over you and his son and grandson will rule over you until the time comes when God will send other nations in to overpower Babylon. And he tells them that if anyone resists Nebuchadnezzar, don't do it. Don't bother resisting. You're going to fall. So don't bother resisting because if you do, you're going to suffer greatly. So don't bother resisting, Jeremiah is telling him. Don't do this. You'll be crushed. If you resist, you'll die by sword, famine, plague if you do this. They should have listened to God because God does what he says he's going to do. Jeremiah even prophesies that the articles of the temple were going to be taken by Babylon into their land and would remain there until the day that I come, declares the Lord, and I bring them back and restore them to this place. And when you look at history and you look what unfolded, you realize that everything that Jeremiah said came true. Everything. It came true. Yes, they went into exile. Yes, the articles of the temple were removed. Yes, God would eventually send them back to their land. But in Jeremiah chapter 52, it describes, along with several others, it describes what happened when Jerusalem fell, when the walls were breached and the temple was destroyed and burned and the articles were taken off into Babylon and the people were taken into exile and only the poor were left behind to work the fields. The text reveals that. And it even reveals that the king of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, did not listen to Jeremiah. He resisted against Nebuchadnezzar. And because they resisted, their city was under siege for at least two years. And the people were starving to death. They were suffering. 
King Zedekiah was captured. His sons were killed in front of him so that his eyes would be the last thing he would see because then they gouged out his eyes and took him off to Babylon. The things that Jeremiah were warning came true. And his 40-year declaration that Jerusalem would fall, and he described it for us, that Jerusalem falling that Jeremiah was talking about, it is recorded at least four times in Scripture. 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, and here in the book of Jeremiah, both in chapter 39 and 52. Four times the Bible describes this event that the prophets were warning about and saying was going to happen. And history reveals to us, it shows us that Babylon was then eventually taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And all of that put together says to us, God does what he says he's going to do. Go ahead and say it with me. God does what he says he's going to do. In the Bible, there's just example after example after example of this that we ought to learn from. Let me give you another one. It's in chapter 46. In chapter 46 of Jeremiah, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I'm about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt, and her gods, and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. I will give them into the hands of those who want to kill them. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past declares the Lord. Jeremiah predicts the overthrow of the Egyptians. In verse 17, he talks about how the Pharaoh was bragging and he was talking about his own strength. And Jeremiah says, it's only loud noise. In other words, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he can't do what he says he's going to do, but God can. God predicts the fall of Babylon, not only the fall of Egypt, but then the fall of Babylon as the other hostile nations come around them. It's from these prophecies that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was enabled to calculate the time of the promised restoration of Israel, that it would be fueled by the decree of Cyrus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So Jeremiah 25 and Daniel 9 and and, uh, 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezekiel chapter 1, all these together show what God's doing. And when you look at these prophecies and you see that, in fact, Egypt fell and you see, in fact, that Babylon was taken over by the Medo-Persians, here's what we realize. God does what he says he's going to do. He does what he says he's going to do. In fact, in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah is imprisoned. He's put in the courtyard of the guard. Why? Because he was telling Zedekiah, the king of Jerusalem, of Judah, don't resist Babylon was building their siege ramps up against the city, coming against Jerusalem. And Jeremiah's like, don't do it. Don't resist. They, they put him in the courtyard of the guard because they didn't want to hear him. They didn't want to listen to him. Besides, it's kind of discouraging when you're trying to, you're trying to fight for your country, for yourself, and against an invading army. But God knew what was going to happen. He tried to warn him. And so his words were not appreciated. And and here's what God tells Jeremiah while he's there in the courtyard of the guard. He tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you, I want you to buy your cousin's field. Here Jeremiah is in the courtyard of the guard. Babylon's building siege ramps. He's been telling everybody, this city's going to fall. And the Babylonians are going to take over this. They're now in charge. Not usually a great time to go invest in some real estate in land, you know, when your, your land and everything else ought to be taken over by an invading army. But God tells Jeremiah... And Jeremiah's wondering, why why are you telling me this? Why do you want me to do this? To buy my cousin's land. And sure enough, his cousin came to him and said, hey, I want you to buy my land. Uh, That was from God. So Jeremiah buys it. And Jeremiah's wondering why God would want him to do this. And here's what God says to him in Jeremiah 32. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase. Put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. 
For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. You're going to have to put it in a clay jar for a while. They're going to be in exile for a while. But I'm bringing them back. And the very fact that you're going to make an investment in real estate of land in which you're going to be uprooted and taken from your land is a sign that my word stands and I do what I say I'm going to do. It was an example for them to see that Jeremiah was trusting God. That It didn't make sense, but he was depending on God's word, not on this world. Even if he didn't understand how it was going to be accomplished or, or how it made sense, he was going to do it. It was good to show that they would come back to their houses and their fields and their vineyards and God would bring them back. And the reason God's doing this is to show to Jeremiah and the people, God does what he says he's going to do. And in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, verse 6, it says, Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I, I will heal my people. Hey, we're getting some good news now. And, and we'll let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. And then in verse 10, this is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, they are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals. There will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever, for I will restore the fortune of the land as they were before, says the Lord. God says, look, you, I do what I say I'm going to do, not just when I bring judgment, but when I bring promise and I bring hope. And you're going to come back to this land and there's going to be dancing and singing and there's going to be wedding bells, there's going to be celebration. I, I'm going to do this. It's a promise that God gives us. It's good news. It's hope. And the promise is that Judah will return to the land. Joy and gladness will resume. And one of the things I love, I'm just appreciative of, is that, you know, as we're reading through this year of Bible engagement, and we've been reading through the prophets, and it's been weighty. Hey, August tw- in August 21st, we start a whole new series. It's like the, the New Testament, right? So on August 21st, that week, you're getting in the New Testament. There's going to be Hallelujah Chorus song uh, all through the land. And so we're, it's coming. But as we keep going through all of these prophets, one of the things that I love is being on this side of history where we can look back and say, God did it. God's doing it. The things that God says he, he is doing, God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And when God says, I'm going to bring my people back to the land and I'm going to rebuild the temple and sacrifices are going to resume and all these things, these things God did. Now, one of the things I want to mention really quick as we start to look at, at what God did in history and how the prophets come into play. There are some believers who think that the fulfillment of these prophecies started in 1948 when Israel was declared to be a nation. That that was kind of the start of the fulfillment of them coming back to their land. Or, or in 1967, when Israel regained control of the temple area there in Jerusalem, there, there were some who saw that as fulfillment of Bible prophecy, as, as a doorway to the second coming of Jesus, the inauguration of the end times. Hal, Hal Lindsey wrote a book, The Great late great planet earth. And, and in it, he said, Israel will rebuild the ancient temple of worship at the historic site there in Jerusalem. And so see this as something to happen that has not yet happened. And that's how they're viewing many of these prophecies. That I, some of those I was just reading to you. Uh, it was through, after Hal Lindsay, that, that was, that influenced also the whole, you probably 
you may not know or recognize that book, The Late Great Planet Earth, but you might recognize the Left Behind series. That, those books were very popular. Many people were reading that, and they kind of went the same direction with all of that. Not my personal recommendation, but anyway, a lot of people loved it. And so it went that way. And so, of course, the problem at the present time is there in Jerusalem, the, the Muslims have their sacred site. The Muslims have their sacred site there in that city. That would have to get torn down before the temple could be rebuilt, and that's how they're, they're looking at this. And, and, um, and if that's the way that's going to play out, you know what? I still believe it. God does what he says he's going to do. You know, it's going to happen. But one of the things I feel like that approach misses is what God has already done. I feel like oftentimes it just skips over everything that God has already done that's fulfillment of so many of these prophecies. And so I want us to look at that for a minute uh, because I think the beauty and the power in Jeremiah talking about this and what's going to come is the fact that it actually happened. It already happened. It, God already did this. And, and I want us to look at it uh, because it's so powerful to me of what he did. And he did it within 70 years of captivity. And so just to look at that, if you look at the screen really quick, I'll just show you that, that when God gave Israel this promise of land, when he gave them land in 1400 BC, Joshua chapter 21, revealing that, and then you skip ahead in Israel history, uh, when they go into captivity, it was in 586 BC. So we're, it's 586 BC, second Kings 25, God sends Israel into captivity. Then God brought Israel back to their homeland in 536 BC, Ezra chapter one Verses 1 through 11 begin to talk about that. That's when Cyrus, the Persian emperor that, that conquered Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or, or he conquered Babylon, when Cyrus conquered Babylon and the Medo-Persians came into power, he was led by the prophet Isaiah through his writings that he was the one to help bring about the fulfillment to bring them back to their land and let them build their temple. Cyrus saw himself as that one that was fulfilling that. And he let them come back to their land. And, and there were actually three returns of the Jews from Babylon to their homeland. The first one was 536 B.C. under Zerubbabel. There was about 50,000 that returned. There could have been more. I mean, more could have returned. But they had been in captivity for so long. And God had told them to, to build houses and to live there. It's going to be a while, he told them. So they did. But then so many were settled there that, and rooted there. They, they didn't want to come back yet. So 50,000 returned. And the temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C. And then in 458 B.C., under Ezra, about 1,800 returned as recorded under that text, Ezra chapter 8. And, and then in 444 B.C., you may know the story of Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and everything with that to fortify the walls. And so he came back. So there, there were three different returns of Jews back into their homeland during that time. And so this prophecy about Israel restoring their temple, restoring sacrifices, coming back into their land, coming from these places, that actually did happen. And it happened in Old Testament times. Zerubbabel did, in fact, rebuild the temple. Like the prophet said, sacrifices were restored. They were in their land. It resumed. Ezekiel talked about that. And when you look at what the prophet said and when the timeline of history occurred, I think that matters. And so I just want to show that really quick. The prophets who wrote before the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. These are the prophets that wrote, you know, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, northern and southern. The first one that fell was the northern kingdom through Assyria. The second was Judah through Babylon. The prophets who wrote before the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, which happened in 722 B.C., were all of these prophets, Joel. Amos, Jonah, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah. And 
even the prophecies in those books about the temple being destroyed or making sacrifices again and and returning to their land, rebuilding their temple, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, they all talk about that. And all of that was written before the Babylonian captivity and the Babylonian exile. And they went back into their land. So all of those wrote prior to Babylon. Then you get to the prophets who wrote before the fall of Judah, because Judah came next, the, the southern kingdom of Israel. And you have Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Nahum and Jeremiah and Obadiah, books that many of you have been reading. And all of these prophets spoke and wrote after the Babylon, excuse me, all of these prophecies were not spoken or written after the Babylonian captivity, about some future date, but before. And the people returned to their homeland and after their Babylonian captivity, just like the prophet said, and the temple was built. And that was long before the 1948 date. So I'm just putting that out there to say, I think God was at work long before 1948. And then you have the prophets who wrote before the return of the exiles, which the return of the exiles was in 536 BC. So you have Ezekiel and Daniel, and they're writing before the return of the exiles. And then you have the prophets who wrote before the rebuilding of the temple, Zechariah and Haggai. And so really the only prophet who wrote after the restoration was complete was Malachi in 430 BC, um, because the restoration was complete in 445 BC prior to that. So Malachi is really the only prophet who wrote after that restoration was already happening. And he never predicts a day of rebuilding the temple, never a day about being restored to your land. Why? Because all of those prophecies had already been made prior to the Babylonian captivity, and those people did go back to their homeland. Malachi's prophecies are more about talking about how Elijah would come, in the, and we know from Jesus in the person of John the Baptist that it, the spirit of Elijah would come in that way. When we get to the Gospels and Jesus talking, he doesn't give restoration prophecy. And the Acts, the book of Acts and the epistles, they don't comment about restoration. John's epistles, they're written after AD 70, which was the fall of Jerusalem to Rome. And they don't say anything about the restoration of the temples. And so from my perspective in reading this, uh, we see the fulfillment of, of prophecy all throughout these books and through Jeremiah. And this fulfillment coming back to their land and these kinds of things, while there are some who think that is still to come, uh, I think it already happened. Regardless, whether it's this view or that view, here is what we know for a fact based on God's track record. God does what he says he's going to do. And I think some of the miraculous things in reading through the book of Jeremiah is that many of these things have already happened. And those things that are still waiting... Things are still waiting. In fact, Jeremiah 31 will talk about that when it talks about the, the new covenant. We're going to be talking more about that next week. But I'm giving all of this information just to say this. God does what he says he's going to do. And he does it over and over again, and it can be trusted, even, even as you're trying to figure out how it all plays out. But one of the things I love is to see how this in history aligns with what God says. I want to give you one last example, one last look at prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 23. And this is where God, in Jeremiah 23, he's rebuking the shepherds of Israel, the the leaders of Israel, because they're not taking care of their people. They're not warning them. 
Uh, they're not leading them to repentance. And so they're, in fact, they're, they're leading the people astray. And, and God actually says that the shepherds have scattered Israel, that they're somewhat responsible for this. They've scattered Israel by not confronting the sin that God said needed to be confronted to bring his people back. And Corey alluded to this earlier in our service. And here it is from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Jeremiah prophecies, prophesies that there will be one who will be the Lord, the righteous branch. He'll raise up for David, from the lineage of David. He'll be called the Lord, our righteous one. In fact, we know from history and scripture that Jesus was the one that Jeremiah is talking about. He descended from the line of David. He was on David's promised throne. In fact, Gabriel the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, when he said that she would give birth to a child, and this, this child was in her womb, given to her by God, and she was to call him Jesus, he said the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. When the angel said that to Mary, she knew exactly who he was talking about. This was the promised Messiah. Jesus, the one that was coming into the world, is the righteous branch, the coming shepherd, the one who will reign and prosper and execute justice and righteousness. He will bring restoration. He's the one to do it. He's the one that ultimately will bring restoration. He is the new shepherd. He is the Messiah. He is the nation's future king. All of our hope ultimately will be in him. He's the one that will bring it to light. Jeremiah 31 goes on to say that he will bring the new covenant, the one that we're under in the New Testament. He will bring a new covenant, which will fulfill God's promise to Abraham and to Moses and to the people and to David. Jeremiah is writing this 600 years before Jesus is born. This is a prophecy that the righteous branch, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to bring a new covenant and he's going to make things right. He's ushering in a new kingdom. And those of us who come to him by faith and belief and trust, we can be a part of that kingdom. And even Jesus affirmed this. After Jesus was born and carried out his ministry and died on a cross and was buried in a tomb and rose from the dead, Jesus goes on a walk. And he's walking on a road with two men on this road to Emmaus. And God prevented them from being able to recognize Jesus in that moment. And as they're walking, heads downcast, Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And they talk about how they had hoped, they had thought that this Messiah was from God and he's been crucified, but religious leaders hand him over and he's been buried. And Jesus in that moment opened their eyes to the scriptures so they could see. And he described for them, starting with Moses and the prophets, which men included Jeremiah 23. I would have loved, I would have loved to have been in there in that moment to let Jesus himself lay it all out. I would have loved that. And he laid out for them what the scripture said concerning the Messiah, that he must suffer and he must die, but that he would raise from the dead. And the, the men's hearts were burning within them as Jesus was talking. It all was making so much sense. And Jesus was telling them, that the Moses and the prophets have said all of this about me. I'm the righteous branch. And when Jesus sat down and broke bread, God opened their eyes and they realized he was in front of them. And then Jesus disappeared from their midst. They ran back to the disciples and told them we've seen Jesus. And that's when Jesus appeared to the disciples with them there to show himself to them. 
Because Jesus was telling them in that moment, God does what God says he's going to do. And Jesus showed himself to the disciples and said, God does what God says he's going to do. You can trust the Father. You can believe in him. You can put your trust in him. And God's plan is that all of us would come to him by faith. That we would come to Jesus by faith. That's what declares you righteous. When you believed, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And now you can get grafted into that tree, that olive tree, by faith, by belief in Jesus, trusting in him. You can become a part of God's family by faith. You become heirs of Abraham and those that God used the nation of Israel to bring us the greatest gift we've ever received, which is the Messiah, Jesus. And we get grafted in by belief, by faith in him. We come to God by faith and he will do what he says he's going to do. That means he will, he will forgive you of your sins if you put your faith and trust in him. It means he will redeem you and transform you. He will be with you, as Joshua 1 talks about, as Jesus said himself. He will restore you and transform you. He will give you rest, as Matthew 11 says. He will strengthen you, as Ephesians 3 says. He will supply all of your needs, as Philippians 4 says. He will work everything out for your good, as Romans 8 says. He will answer your prayers, as Matthew 7 says. He will do this and more. Because God does what he says he's going to do. Do you trust him? Do you believe him for the long term? Jeremiah reveals to us that when God warns you of coming judgment, if you don't believe in him and put your trust in him and have faith in him, he warns us, if you don't follow him, God does what he says he's going to do. There's a warning there that we should heed. And God says, But if you put your faith in me and you trust me and you believe in me and my promises that I want to restore you and I want to heal you and I want to give you hope for a future and hope for eternal life, if you believe this, then it's yours. Then we stand at these crossroads to say, are we going to believe him? Are we going to trust him? Do we believe that God does what he says he's going to do? Because if we believe that, it's going to affect us to the extent that we will repent of our sin and turn from the world and we will turn to God. And if we believe it, then, then we're going to believe it to the extent of which we make him the Lord and the Savior of our life. And we put our trust in him and we believe in him and we follow him and we die to ourselves so that we can live in him. Every day becomes a practice of surrender. Surrendering my will so I can be obedient to God's will. Who would do that? Who would do that kind of thing? Who would buy land when the siege ramps are building built up against it? Someone who believes that God does what he says he's going to do. And that's my prayer today is that you would do that. That every person in this room needs to make that decision to believe and to trust in Jesus and to surrender their life to him, that they would do that today. Why? Because there's this warning that God gives. Time's running out. And as far as it is today, this is the day of salvation. So this is the moment that you can put your faith and your belief in Jesus. We want to give you a chance to do that today. I want to be stepping out to Decision Point. I'd love to meet you there. If you're watching online, you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to begin that conversation with us. And, And this also becomes a moment of commitment for us, of response where... We say, I'm, I'm going to come to the God who does the impossible, who does more than we ask or imagine. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to lean into him. And so today we want you to give everything you have to him. And this is even a chance right now just to give your offerings to the Lord as an act of worship. And you can see on the screen how to do that or at the boxes at the back of the room as you leave. And 
One of the things that we're excited about is, is uh, that we have um, Lynn with us. She's one of our workers uh, in North Africa. She's here with us today. And she would love, I think, to meet you. And maybe you, you can even ask her, how could we pray for you? Just to encourage her to say hi to her. She's at our go wall right out here in our go lobby. So for most of you, you go out these doors into our lobby and hang a left. And she'll be standing right there at her go wall and you can see what's going on. If you're on this side of the room, go out the doors and hang a right. Otherwise, you'll end up in an elevator or our water detention area, neither of which will get you to where you're trying to go. So, uh, But I just know Lynn would love to talk to you, um, share with you some things that you can be praying for her as she's here for a little bit longer this summer. And so we want to invite you to do that as well. So if you just stand to your feet right now, we could just use this as a time to listen to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father wants you to trust Him, to obey Him. What areas of your life right now do you need to hear? Do you need to listen? Do you need to heed and turn from? And what areas of your life do you need to surrender to the Lord right now so that He would be your Lord and your Savior, knowing that there is the promise of a future for you if you would follow Him? Jesus, I just pray that you would Reveal those things to our heart right now. and Lord, you would open our eyes to see what you see. Thank you for opening our eyes to see what you have done in the past, that you, you're faithful, you're true. What you say is true. And you do what you say you're going to do. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll meet you right over here. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.